Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, as always, Trevor Furness. My co-host, Brendan, my brother, was not able to join us today. So this podcast, this episode, will be a solo episode. Now, we left off last week with Julius Caesar racing home from his praetorship in Spain to Rome to celebrate his triumph and to try to run for the consulship and make it there in time to declare his consulship or declare his candidacy, that is. So we're going to pick up where we left off today, and we're actually going to talk not just about Julius Caesar, but also about Pompey Magnus as well, because Pompey's been away for a while, and we need to catch you up on what he's been doing because it applies directly to what Julius Caesar is about to do. But before we get into that, let me just remind you that we the March of History podcast does have an Instagram page. You can find it at the March of History That's at the March of History, and I post pictures of a whole assortment of history there, some that I've taken, some that I haven't taken, some are just historical paintings, but many of them have to do exactly with what we talk about each week in the podcast, and some of them are just random tidbits of history, but it's going to be a great page just for you to get a weekly dose of history there in addition to the podcast, and once I head to Spain... I'll be living in Andalusia, so I'll be able to see a lot of the areas that Caesar campaigned in and fought in, so I'll be posting a lot of pictures of those terrains and of those battlefields on that Instagram page, so it's definitely worth checking out. The Twitter, at March underscore history, I have not done much with yet, but I plan to do it eventually. That's at March underscore history, or feel free to shoot us an email with feedback or what you liked about the podcast or what you didn't like. And that's the March of History at gmail.com. Finally, if all of our listeners could please go, if you listen on an Apple device, go into the podcast store, give us a rating. We would love it if it would be a five star rating and just write a little blurb about what you liked about the podcast. That helps the podcast to grow so much more than you know. We would really appreciate that. And I guess the final thing would be if you are enjoying the podcast and you do like history like this and you're into Roman history and and just history in general, I'm sure you have friends and family members that are as well. Please spread the word and share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. We are definitely trying to grow the podcast as much as possible, so we would definitely appreciate that. Now, as I said, Caesar is rushing back to Rome to make it in time to declare his candidacy for the consulship. But before we get into what Caesar does, let's just give you a refresher on where Pompey has been. So you'll notice that Pompey has not been in our past five to six episodes. So if you've forgotten who he is, if you're new to Roman history, I'll just give you a quick reminder. Pompey is the, at this point, greatest general Rome has probably ever seen. He's known for skipping all the rungs on the political ladder He, I believe his first position in the Roman Senate was as consul. He wasn't even any of the previous positions before that. He held his first triumph when he was in his 20s. He seems to break all the rules and none of the laws of physics when it comes to Roman politics seem to apply to Pompey. And so Pompey, you'll remember, he was the one that was giving the command to defeat the pirates in the Mediterranean that were plaguing the Mediterranean and attacking aristocrats, attacking merchant vessels. And he did a spectacular job at that, ended the whole pirate infestation that had plagued the Mediterranean for decades and did it in record time. Pompey then used that popularity to steal command in the East in the war against the king of Pontus in in northern Turkey, King Mithridates, and the king Tigranes of Armenia. Because that war, you'll remember, was under the command of a man named Lucullus. Now, Lucullus is not a name you really have to remember for this episode, but I'm just reminding you of who he is. Lucullus was one of Sulla's commanders, and he was the guy who was in charge of defeating Mithridates after Sulla returned to Rome. Lucullus was, you'll remember, Claudius's brother-in-law, the brother-in-law that Claudius felt did not promote him quick enough. And so Claudius helped to push that mutiny against Lucullus. And it was when that mutiny happened and when Lucullus's troops 
resenting what they felt was that he didn't share enough loot with them, that Pompey struck along with the Pubicani or the big corporations in Rome who were trying to fleece the provincials in the east of as much money as they could because Lucullus had been stopping them from doing so. So they had, they had it out for Lucullus anyway. So they saw Pompey and Pompey said he'd be happy to work with them. So Pompey comes in and actually takes Lucullus' command and defeats Mithridates, defeats Tigranes, and essentially wins this war. But here's the thing. It's not so simple as that. It's not like Pompey's this great general and Lucullus wasn't. Lucullus won epic, unbelievable battles during his time in the East. He, in fact, campaigned for seven years. And before that, Sola campaigned against Mithridates and defeated him a number of times too. So Pompey kind of came in at the last moment. And yes, he still did great things, but he hardly deserves credit for the complete defeat of Mithridates and of Tigranes and of you know all their eastern enemies. But he's certainly happy to take credit for all of this. When Pompey's given command in the east, he's actually given command of the largest force ever to be sent by any Roman commander to the east. So he's got more resources and more troops than any Roman commander has ever had sent to the east to uh, fight a war. On top of that, he's given the right to make war and peace at his own discretion on the spot. This is another thing that's just almost unheard of in, in Roman history. The idea that a general could make war and peace at his own discretion without consulting the Senate. These are the kind of special commands that our, our friend Cato is always going on about. He, he hates them. He doesn't believe that there should be special commands like this. And it's easy to see why. It's a lot of power for one person. Now, the story of the transfer of the power of the army from Lucullus to Pompey is actually quite an interesting one. So it's, it's one I want to flesh out for you a little bit. Now, the story goes that Pompey's troops are riding through a dust-filled plain to where Lucullus is camped at the edge of a forest. And Lucullus sees that the laurels around Pompey's lictors, fasces, are dried out. And for those who are not as familiar with Roman history, let me translate that sentence into easier to understand English. So the, the proconsuls or anybody with a high up command would have lictors. Lictors were like bodyguards. That's basically what the lictors mean. And lictors would carry around what they called fasces. Those were the bundle of rods. And in this case, they'd have an ax placed inside them that represented the governor or proconsul's power. So in this case, Pompey's bodyguards carrying these bundle of rods with the axe in them, these fasces, have laurels draped around the axe, and the laurels are dried out. And so Lucullus, being a gentleman and trying to make peace, orders some of his soldiers to ride out and replace these laurels with fresh ones for Pompey's soldiers. Now what happens next is fascinating, and Tom Holland in his book Rubicon does a great job of describing it. There's a lot of drama involved, so I'm going to go ahead and read a quote from his book to give you a better idea of what goes on. Quote, Unsurprisingly, the meeting between Lucullus and Pompey, conducted with chilly politeness at first, soon degenerated into a slanging match. Pompey jeered at Lucullus for his inability to finish off Mithridates. Lucullus retorted with a bitter description of his replacement as a carrion bird, maddened by blood, only ever settling on the carcasses of wars fought by better men. The abuse turned so violent that the two generals finally had to be pulled apart. But it was Pompey who was the proconsul and could therefore land the killer blow. He stripped Lucullus of his remaining legions, then continued on his way, leaving Lucullus to nurse his injured dignity and depart a private citizen again on the long road back to Rome, end quote. So you have these two big egos meeting up at this almost like desert meeting place at the edge of some forest, and I love Lucullus' description of Pompey. Just to remind you what that was, Lucullus calls him a carrion bird, meaning a bird that eats blood and, and meat, maddened by blood, only ever settling on the carcasses of wars fought by better men. So that was a very wounding blow to Pompey to say that because that essentially is what Pompey does. 
He goes to wars that have already been fought long and hard by other men, and then he takes over either near the turning point or at the turning point or after the turning point, and then claims all of the victory for himself. So Lucullus really hit the nail on the head with that insult, and Pompey was not happy. But Pompey goes on, and he ends up finishing off the king Mithridates of Pontus and King Tigranes of Armenia, and then reorganizes the entire east at his own whim. He turns Syria, Bithynia, and Pontus into provinces. He appoints Roman governors and establishes new systems by which provinces would be governed. He creates client kingdoms all around the Roman provinces. And the results of this reorganization of these Roman provinces, which have been war-torn for years... I mean, since Sulla's time, they've been in, under war. So it's probably over a decade or more. And the result of that, and there's, there's a few different sources that claim different numbers. So I'm going to give you just an idea of a few of the different numbers that get thrown out there. Which one's right, I don't think we'll ever really know. But Pompey supposedly increased the state income by 70%. So that's the, the annual revenue that the Roman treasury brings in. He increased by 70% from 200 million sestercii to 340 million sestercii per annum. And the value of the booty that he brought home, just the extra treasure that he brought home in a lump sum, was a further 480 million sestercii. So that those numbers I got from John Leach in his book, Pompey the Great. But Adrian Goldsworthy in his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, states that Pompey himself claims to have increased it, the state income from 200 million sestercii, just like the, the last quote said. But instead of to 340 million, Pompey claimed to have increased it to 540 million sestercii, more than doubling the Republic's annual revenue. And he claims to have added 20 talents to the treasury, which would be an additional 646 million sestercii. So if we take Pompey at his word, he more than doubles, I mean, almost triples, but more than doubles the Roman treasury's annual earnings. And then on top of that, deposits a lump sum of three times the original annual earnings into the treasury. This is an enormous amount of money flooding into the Roman government. This is, is unprecedented numbers, unprecedented riches, and you better believe Pompey's not just handing all the gold that he comes across over. He's making himself fabulously rich out there. And all of his soldiers and all of his commanders, Pompey is going to return to Rome, perhaps richer than Crassus, with just obscene amounts of wealth never seen before in Rome. But Pompey has these incredible adventures while he's over there in the east, and he even marches his legions at one point around the eastern shore of the Black Sea and actually attacks a tribe or multiple tribes in what is today southern Russia. That's wild if you ask me to think about Roman troops marching into southern Russia. You really think of Romans and, and Russia kind of mixing it up at all but here you have him going all the way around the black sea to what today is southern russia he also goes after judea at one point which the romans saw as kind of a troublesome kingdom that often rebelled and pompey attacks jerusalem and ends up taking jerusalem by force and then attempts to storm the temple despite desperate resistance from the jewish people and he eventually does storm the temple and then Pompey is curious about the reports of what he sees as the bizarre god that the Jewish people worship. And he wants to see more about it, wants to know more about it. So he ends up walking into the innermost sanctum of the temple, of the great temple in Jerusalem, against the fierce protests of the priests there. And there he is confused and disappointed to find it empty. But still, this whole thing adds to... Pompey's legend of crazy things that he's doing in the East, things that people in his army are writing home to their families about and telling people about. So his legend is growing by doing all these things, even if he's pissing off some of the people in the provinces. Now, Pompey does leave the temple, its treasures, as a sign of respect, even though he walked into the inner sanctum. He did leave them their treasures as a sign of respect, and he installs a puppet high priest in Jerusalem to rule over Judea for the Romans. And Pompey spent a number of years just re 
administering the provinces in this area, and many of Pompey's regulations for governing these provinces would remain in place for centuries after he he was gone. So it's funny because Pompey gets this reputation for being the guy who comes in and steals the show at the last moment and doesn't deserve all the credit for the victory, and that is true, but make no mistake, he is an extremely skilled administrator and organizer and what he does in the east to the provinces after the enemy is defeated is just amazing levels of organization and skill. And I mean, he goes and creates not just provinces, but he creates puppet kingdoms all around the provinces to protect Rome from enemies and to create buffer states. And all these kingdoms pay tribute to Rome too. So he sets up a very complex organization that most people in history would just not have been able to do, did not have the skill for. But Pompey was that guy and could do that. Now, Pompey returns to Rome in December 62 BC. So this is even before Caesar, or maybe around the time Caesar's leaving for for Spain. And many, when Pompey returned, feared that he would be returning at the head of a conquering army and that he would try to take the city by force. Contrary to everybody's expectations, though, Pompey's return to Rome was actually peaceful. He landed in Brudisium in southern Italy, which was the common place to land when you're coming back from the east or coming back from Greece. They would sail to southern Italy to Brundisium with his troops. He dismisses his troops and tells them not to gather again until he is ready for his triumph. So from the standpoint of those who believe in the Republic, who want peace, Pompey is behaving like a model citizen, like a model general, everything the Romans could hope for. He's got all the power in the world, yet he's not using it against them. He's dismissing his troops. He's telling them not to gather, not to cause problems. This should be everything that the Romans, and especially the Optimates, would want to see out of him. And he then proceeds to Rome with nothing but a few friends. I know one description I read in one of the books said, for all the world, like he had been on holiday with some close friends and was just returning from, from vacation or holiday. But he can't enter Rome yet, Pompey, because he is going to have a massive triumph. In fact, his third triumph for what he's done in the East. And the way that works is he is still considered a general under command right now. And a general under command of an army cannot enter the city of Rome. If he's going to enter the city of Rome, he's going to he needs to renounce his command on the army first, become a regular citizen again, and then he can enter. But the issue is a citizen cannot hold a triumph. So his triumph gets set a certain date, and he, as a commanding general, has to sit outside the city until that date comes. Now, on that date of the triumph, that's the one exception where a commanding general can enter the city. And he rides on a float, just like I've described before. But until then, he has to stay outside the city and kind of camp there and wait. And then after the day of his triumph, he can enter the city again. So Pompey's third triumph, when it does happen, is massive. He is the first Roman to ever declare triumphs over three different continents. Before that, there had been a man who had triumphed in two different continents, I believe Spain and Africa. Could be wrong about that one. But Pompey claims triumphs. He's had two previous already, Spain and Africa, and then this is the third one, what the Romans would call Asia, the Middle East. First person in Roman history to ever do this. And he displays signs in his triumphal parade, like most Roman generals, that quantify the kind of success that he had to let people know, here's the numbers. And he claims to have killed, captured, or defeated 12,183,000 people. He claims that he's taken or sunk 846 warships. He says that he's accepted the surrender of 1,538 towns or fortresses. And he even has signs listing every one of these places that he says that he's taken. He has paintings depicting the now famous scenes of his battles. He has a huge portrait bust of himself, of Pompey, made entirely of pearls carried through the streets. The amount of wealth that he demonstrates in this parade is just dazzling to the Romans. He even arranges the triumph to fall on one day before his 45th birthday. Of course, he didn't advertise this fact. And as Tom Holland says in his book Rubicon, quote, Alexander had famously died at the young age of 32. Pompey had already spent a whole decade being 34, end quote. 
And what he's saying with that quote is Pompey had this obsession with being young, with being seen as the boy wonder. And for most Roman statesmen, they longed for their 40s, where they would be given a great command and have the consulship and become kind of the peak of what they would be in, in their careers. Only a guy like Pompey, who had skipped every rung on the ladder, could wistfully look back at his younger days as the glory days. And so Pompey is just you know, making sure that he triumphs again before his 45th birthday so that he can be a year younger, 44. But he's still pretending to be Alexander. You know, He still wants to pretend like he is Alexander. And that's why Tom Holland says that quote, that Alexander famously died at 32. Pompey has spent already a whole decade being 34. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. But to modern ears, when you hear some of these numbers that Pompey says, particularly the one that strikes me is the 12,183,000 people killed, captured, or defeated, that number strikes at me because it's similar to the numbers listed for the Holocaust, 12 million. And the idea that they're celebrating that in a parade is just so different than what we would celebrate today or, or the things that the common people would cheer today. Now, granted, the number 12 million put out by Pompey is probably far exaggerated. And he didn't say that they're all killed. Some are killed, some are captured, some are defeated. But still, it's, it's a striking number, especially considering the fact that this is the ancient world. There was nowhere near the populations in the ancient world that the world in 1940-something had. So the idea that he killed, captured, or defeated 12 million people is just radical. It's probably far exaggerated, but still, the idea – I guess what I'm saying is that the idea that the Romans would proudly show these kinds of numbers and celebrate them says a lot about the character of their people and of their culture. Now, Pompey also declares that he had given all of his soldiers 6,000 sestercii each which is worth more than 10 years of pay. So I don't know if this was a one-time bonus that he gave them or if this was what he paid them throughout the campaign, but he's essentially letting the people know that he pays his soldiers well. Now, in any triumph, you would have the defeated peoples in chains being drugged behind the army or being pushed in front of the army. Now, in Pompey's case, of course, he has to do it bigger and better. So in, the, in addition to the normal enemies dragged and changed, Pompey has over 300 kings, queens, princesses, chieftains, and generals all dressed according to their national customs paraded before the people of Rome. So you can imagine how exotic this must have seemed to the peasants in Rome, to the people from the poor slums to see all these kings and queens and chieftains and generals all dressed in these fabulously different ways that the Roman people have never seen before, all looking as brilliant as a king or a queen should in all their jewels and fancy dress, but they're prisoners of the great Roman Empire. So even the lowest Roman person in the crowd who has nothing to their name can look at these kings and queens in bondage being paraded before them and say, hey, I'm even better than you. At least I'm a Roman. You know, we conquered you. It's just a, it's an interesting kind of glimpse into the psyche of the Roman people and, and what they celebrated. And finally in this parade came Pompey himself on a chariot, face painted like a god, and wearing a cape that he had taken from the treasure vault of Mithridates, said to be the cape of Alexander the Great himself. So not only is Pompey pretending to be Alexander the Great by being this East, this great conqueror of the East, he is actually literally pretending to be Alexander by wearing his cape. Now whether it was actually Alexander's cape, who knows, but Alexander was not so much longer before the time of Pompey that it would be impossible. And all this prestige that Pompey gains from this kind of parade, this kind of triumph, all this glory, Tom Holland in his book has a great quote on how the Romans saw glory and how they approached it. So I think it, it's a good one to read to you, so I'm going to read that to you now. Quote, As water was used to dilute wine, so time was relied on to dissipate the headiness of glory. The Romans, precisely because they had a deeper thirst for honor than any other people in the world, were the more alert to its perils. 
The sweeter it tasted, the greater the risk of intoxication. The limit of a magistracy was set at a year, but a triumph at one or two days. So it's a fascinating glimpse that the Romans are so honor-hungry and crave it so much that they almost understand the dangers of this kind of glory and honor more than most people, and so limit all their political positions to one-year terms and limit something as grand a spectacle as a triumph to only one or two days. But not all is well for Pompey. Despite this huge triumph, once the Senate realizes that they don't have to fear Pompey, that he's not going to march on Rome, that he's not going to butcher citizens, that he's not going to impose his own dictatorship on the people, they quickly got in line to knock him down a peg or two. So, I mean, this is the thing that drives me crazy about Rome is Pompey does all the right things here. And rather than rewarding him as a model citizen, the Roman aristocrats just line up to try to knock him down a peg or two because they hate seeing anybody being champion above the rest. And they really are a whole group of haters. And so I have a quick excerpt from, again, Rubicon, where Pompey is giving a speech in the Senate and some things happen, and it kind of exemplifies the different ways the senators would take shots at Pompey and try to take him down a peg and make fun of him in public. It goes, quote, When he, meaning Pompey, complacently commended the Senate for suppressing Catiline, Crassus was immediately up on his feet, praising Cicero to the skies, lauding him in ludicrously exaggerated terms, claiming that he never looked at his wife or home without thanking Cicero for their continued existence. Cicero himself, completely failing to recognize the irony, was thrilled. He had always idolized Pompey, and to be praised like this in the great man's presence was heaven. Yet even he had to acknowledge that his hero, meaning Pompey, listening to Crassus's speech, had appeared a little, quote, peeved. End quote. <laughs> so Crassus, essentially what's going on there is Pompey is kind of almost giving a backhanded compliment. Like, oh, yes, she did very well putting down the Catiline Rebellion. I'm sure he wasn't happy that he didn't get to be the hero that somebody else was. And so Crassus, without missing a beat, pops up interrupting Pompey's speech and just starts declaring how he never fails to look at his wife or his children without thanking Cicero for their continued existence essentially pumping up Cicero and, and making this time in this meeting in the Senate more about championing Cicero as the hero of the people and taking away from Pompey, which Pompey is not at all amused about. And Cicero is just so vainglorious and so arrogant that he doesn't even notice that you know this is all just to make fun of Pompey. He takes it at face value. There's a funny interaction between all these different personalities. Now, outside of his professional and political woes, Pompey has some bad things going on in his domestic affairs. You remember Caesar has been having an affair with Pompey's wife while he's been away. And Caesar was not the only one that she was cheating with. She, her affairs were widely known throughout Rome. So Pompey, this great general, cannot be seen to be or seen to have a, a wife that disrespects him, that cheats on him, and makes him into the cuckold. So Pompey promptly divorces her when he returns. And this angers her half-brothers, Metellus Nepos and Metellus Seller. Those were Pompey's allies, and now they instantly become his enemies because they are just very sensitive guys that are very quick to see slights and get angry about things, and they are extremely angry at Pompey for divorcing their sister despite the fact that she was having all these affairs. Pompey then wants his son and himself to marry Cato's two nieces. These are Sevilla's daughters. Sevilla, remember, is Caesar's long-term uh, love, the, the woman that he has an affair with from the time he's a teenager for many decades, and she's Cato's half-sister, and, and Pompey wants himself and his son to marry Cato's two nieces or Servilia's two daughters. And he wants to do this to show the establishment and optimates that he's on their side. They don't have to be afraid of him. He's not trying to take down the Republic. He wants to be one of them. And so Pompey asks Cato's permission to marry them. And Cato just outright says no. And Pompey from this whole episode, is he's left looking incredibly embarrassed and ridiculous. 
And the ambitious Servilia, Caesar's lover and half-sister of Cato, and her two daughters are extremely upset. In fact, all the women in the family were up in arms about this, according to Tom Holland and, and a few other sources that I've seen. They all wanted the daughters to be able to marry the great war hero, Pompey. He was good-looking. He was dashing. He was fabulously rich. He would put, create a good lifestyle for their daughters, and, and his son was going to go great places too. And so they were furious that Cato would just snub this offer and not give the daughters the opportunity to do this. But this adds to Cato's legend, and his legend grows for putting his morals ahead of his political advantage and for just being a paragon of republic virtues. And Cato makes a comment at one point, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it written down, that Pompey would not outflank him via the bedroom, essentially saying that Pompey was not going to get everything that he wanted and, and pass all the bills that he wanted and make a friend out of Cato by via the bedroom, basically by marrying into his family. Cato is as disagreeable as ever. But that's not where Pompey's woes end. There's a lot of opposition to Pompey in the Senate. Now, during this period, he has two main goals – and he was having issues accomplishing both of them. All of Pompey's success bothered the many aristocrats in Rome, bothered them to no end. And Cato and Crassus soon organized an opposition against Pompey. And Pompey's two things that he's trying to accomplish are he wants to ratify the settlements he has in the eastern part of the empire – Basically, all the decisions he's made for the past, what, five years, all the organization he's made, the provinces he's set, the, the kings whose thrones he's given to them, the administrative procedures he's set in place, he wants all this to be ratified by the Senate. And the Senate's refusing to do this. Now, typically, all these kind of decisions that Pompey had been making would be made by a senatorial committee. Instead, Pompey had just gone ahead and made all these decisions himself without consulting the Senate. And he did so extremely well and did a fantastic job of organizing all this. But this still made the Senate mad, him usurping their authority. To them, it's irrelevant whether he did a much better job than they ever would have done. The fact that he took it upon himself to do this, they are in no mood to do him any favors and to ratify these. And Cato and Lucullus, the person who... Pompey stole the command from because he's another big enemy in the Senate now. And many other leading senators want to go through Pompey's decisions item by item and decide on them which ones to keep and which ones to reject. Pompey's not having this. He wants it all ratified in one law without having to go through line by line of every decision that he made and question everything he did in, in the past five years. He just wants it all ratified. He just wants a rubber stamp on all of it. The second thing that Pompey wants is that he has promised farms to his veterans. They have served long and hard, and they deserve farmland. And this is really something that's in the interest of the entire republic, too, because having a bunch of unemployed, angry veteran soldiers with the ability to fight and no jobs and no prospects is a very bad thing for the republic. Because if they have no options, they're going to turn to thieving, they're going to turn to brigantry, they're going to create gangs. It's going to cause chaos throughout the empire. But the Senate, out of stubbornness or out of spite, refuses to grant Pompey's veterans any land. And this is when, you remember back to episode one when I said the soldiers became more soldiers of the general than of the Roman Republic? This kind of crap is the reason why. You have the soldiers here who have fought long and hard for the Republic, and the senators are more interested in poking Pompey in the eye than helping these loyal soldiers of the Republic. So the soldiers see, hey, Pompey's fighting to get his land, and the Senate's stopping them. What do we owe to the Senate? What do we care about the Senate? The Senate cares nothing for us. And even as far back as 70 BC, when Pompey was fighting in Spain in that civil war, Pompey had gotten a law passed to the Senate bill that provided land for his veterans, but the Senate did not allocate enough land for the veterans to actually be resettled. So even his veterans that fought in Spain back 10 years ago have not been settled on the land they were promised. 
this is deeply embarrassing to a powerful commander like Pompey because he's supposed to be taking care of his troops. And this is all showing that he does not have the clout and political ability to take care of his troops and to force this kind of legislation through. Cato even goes so far in a Senate meeting as to sneer at Pompey's victory over Mithridates as, quote, a war against women, end quote. So Cato, again, out to make no friends as always. And Pompey tries a number of times to get these things passed, but with no success. And at one point, there's even a wild standoff between between a tribune who had been a commander of Pompey's, so was working in his interests, and a consul, Metellus Seller. That's the ex-brother-in-law of Pompey. So it's the, it's the um, half-brother of Pompey's ex-wife, the, the two Metelli, the Metellus, who hate Pompey, is the consul. And Metellus Seller, that's Pompey's old brother-in-law, hates Pompey specifically for divorcing his half-sister. And the Tribune tries to pass the, the land bill, but the consul Metellus Seller, that's Pompey's old brother-in-law, is so obstructive and obnoxious in stopping them that the Tribune actually has him, the consul, arrested and sent to prison. That blows my mind that you have a Tribune, which is a much lower rank than a consul, consul the top dog, having a consul arrested and hauled off to prison. Now, I couldn't find in any sources whether this prison that he gets hauled off to is the, I'm sorry, Tullianum, which is the cistern prison that we talked about with the Catalan conspirators. But the consul is intelligent, Metellus, and he knows exactly what to do here. And he calls for a meeting of the Senate within the prison to drive home to all the senators that a, a consul of Rome has been sent to prison. And so the Tribune tries to place his bench across the entrance to this jail and sits on it so that no senators can get past him and get into the jail. The consul then has a hole knocked down in the wall of the jail for the Senate to come through so the Senate can still meet with him in jail. Now Pompey sees all this and he sees that he's losing the moral battle and he's afraid of how the people of Rome are going to react when they see all this. So he tells the Tribune to finally re release Metellus Cell or the consul. But all this is a big embarrassing loss for Pompey. He's becoming more of a laughingstock in Rome than the grand war hero he wants to be seen as. And by the spring of 60 BC, Pompey seems to have fallen into a great depression or, or deep depression, I guess you would call it. Tom Holland cites Cicero as saying, quote, The great man seems to do nothing all day, Cicero confided to Atticus, except sit in wistful silence, and quote within a quote, quote, and gaze at the toga which he wore in his triumph, end quote. So he sits around all day doing nothing, sitting in wistful silence, and gazing at the toga which he wore in his triumph. It's just this picture of this great man dreaming of the glory days and wishing it was still like that because he's having a tough time facing up to what reality has become in his life. But Pompey needs a top-notch political ally in the consulship to try to break this logjam and to restore his dignitas. And there's an obvious candidate out there for that, and that is our very own Gaius Julius Caesar but he's over in Spain right now. Caesar, of course, keeps abreast of all the politics in Rome, and he hears news of Pompey's plight. And in that trouble that Pompey's having, Caesar sees a great opportunity, and he seizes it with both hands. But to do so, he would need to hurry. You see, candidates for the consulship have to declare themselves for the consulship in Rome by the end of July. This is why at the end of the last episode, we have Julius Caesar hurrying off to rush to Rome to try to get there as quickly as possible, even before his governorship is over. This is the reason why. He saw his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the lifeline to Pompey and to have a powerful ally like that, and he's not going to miss it by waiting until next year to run for his consulship. And just as, as a side note, Caesar is probably given a special dispensation to allow him to stand for the consulship two years early, and at this point, he's 40 years old, we think. And Caesar, like I said, he leaves his province before his successor even arrives, and he travels at his customary breakneck speed that just wowed all of his contemporaries. 
and he makes it to the Campus Martius, or the Field of Mars, the, the god of war outside of the city of Rome, just in time. But, like Pompey, he is forbidden to enter Rome while still officially under arms, because he's going to hold that triumph. And so, the issue is that he's required to go into Rome to declare his candidacy for the consulship, but he's not allowed to go into Rome because he's going to hold this triumph, and he's still a general under arms. So Caesar applies to the Senate to declare his candidateship in abstentia with one day to spare. So he's got one day to spare and he applies to them and asking, hey, can I apply in abstentia to run for consul? And he does this so that he can still have his triumph and run for consul as well. And the Senate seems perfectly willing to agree to this and to grant him this wish. It's, it's nothing crazy. He's right there outside the city limits. He's not. It's not as if he's at some other part of the empire. But a vote has to be taken before sunset on this day before the consuls have to declare. And knowing this, Cato stands up and begins speaking. And speaking. And speaking. And Cato filibusters until the sun sets. And the vote had to be taken before sunset. So Cato knows this. So he filibusters until sunset and now no vote can be taken And so now Caesar knows that there's no shot of him being granted a dispensation to run in absentia. Every time I read about this story, I just I'm blown away by how petty Cato is because there's little to no benefit to Cato to do this, to stand up and filibuster and to block the Senate taking a vote because Okay, I guess I could see if Cato got it up there and gave a great speech as to why Caesar should not be given this special dispensation and convinced everybody that's how republics, that's how democracy works. Cato is obstructing democracy. He's not letting any vote occur. He's just filibustering. And he's only doing this just to poke Caesar in the eye, just because he hates Caesar's guts. He just does not want Caesar to be able to run for consul this year or does not want him to have a triumph. But Cato fully expects that Caesar will give up the consulship and not run that year, and therefore buy what he sees as, you know, buy the Republic another year, spare them from Caesar being consul and, and doing whatever crazy things Caesar would do with that kind of power. But back to Caesar, he's got to choose between his triumph, which is oftentimes once in a lifetime, and running for the consulship this year and having that opportunity to be Pompey's savior or Pompey's man in the consulship that can help him. Now, he could always run for the consulship next year, but Pompey's problems could be solved by then. Who knows how much would happen in a year? But if he gave up his triumph, he would never get this triumph back. It's possible that he may win triumphs in the future. But this one for Spain, he would never get back if he gives it up. And just to drive this home, triumphs are rare for proconsuls, which would be a, a consul that goes out to a province to be a governor. But they're extremely rare for a pro-praetor like Caesar. This is like the youngest age you can possibly get a triumph, and Caesar has one. But as Tom Holland says, Caesar never had any issue distinguishing the substance from the shadow of power. And Caesar knows exactly what he's going to do. And he marches into Rome, foregoing his triumph and proudly declaring that he would be a candidate for the consulship this year in 60 BC, running for the year 59 BC. And the people of Rome are floored by this. No one gives up a triumph. This is unheard of. This is insanity. A triumph is once in a lifetime. Caesar can run for the consulship the next year. The idea that he would give up this once-in-a-lifetime honor to run for the consulship, it's beyond most people. It goes right over their head. And in Rome, especially where almost nothing is valued higher than military glory, the idea that you would give up a day where everybody in the city, everybody you've ever grown up with, is cheering your name and championing you, and your face is painted like a god, all for this military glory you've received is just mind-blowing to everybody in Rome. And Caesar enters the political race for the consulship, and he knew it was his to win. Caesar had been preparing for this for actually a while now, and had been writing letters to all the leading senators while in Spain, attempting to win them over to his side. In fact, Caesar was a prolific letter writer. He could even dictate to several scribes at the same time, 
which actually reminds me of I, I read a book on Napoleon called Napoleon the Great, where they uh, the author I think it's Andrew Roberts is his name said that Napoleon Bonaparte did much the same thing where he would dictate to several scribes at once. He would say, I don't know, three or four sentences to one scribe. And while that guy was writing that down, he would go to the next one, start dictating the next few sentences in that letter, and then go to the next letter and start dictating a few in that letter. And by the time he got around to the original scribe, that guy would have been finished writing and ready to take a few more lines. So writing multiple letters at once and keeping them all straight in his head as to where he was on each one. And Caesar would do that back in 60 BC now. So just crazy talent, crazy hard work from Caesar. And in fact, Caesar was actually the first man to write letters while in Rome to friends and allies who were also in Rome. It seems like kind of a bizarre thing to do to write letters to people that are in the same city as you. But Caesar just saw it as another way to practice his writing, to keep in touch with everybody around the Republic. And he was the first one to do that and created the trend of it. But anyway, back to the political race, the Optimates were not expecting Caesar to make this decision and go into a sort of panic. Caesar is immensely popular with the common people, and what's more, Pompey would be on his side if Caesar helps him to ratify these settlements in the east and grant his veterans land. And already, money from Pompey's massive fortunes that he's made in the east are flooding into the electorate to buy the consulship, buy both consulship positions for Pompey, whether it's Caesar or somebody else. And Cato and the Optimates knew that they have no chance of stopping Caesar from winning the top spot because, like I said, Caesar's a absolute favorite of the people. Nobody believes that they can deny him from the consulship altogether. He's just bound to win. He's just too good. And they can't even stop him from getting the top spot. But what they do think that they can do is stick him with somebody in the second consulship position, the junior consul, that is hostile to Caesar's aims. And then kind of check him while he's in his year in office. And the person they choose to do this, because there's only three people running that I know, or three of note, they settle on Cato's son-in-law, one Bibulus. And this is the same Bibulus that Caesar served in the Aedileship with, and, and Bibulus detested Caesar because Caesar always overshadowed him, always got credit for anything Bibulus did, and Bibulus is described as the plotting and earnest senator, uh, but he is very much an optimate. He's Cato's son-in-law. He's uh, a big enemy of Caesar. He hates Caesar. Caesar feels more, I think, contempt or, or dismissiveness for Bibulus but this may be another reason why Cato sought to deny Caesar his triumph. He wanted to help Bibulus win, and he didn't want Caesar to get even more popularity by holding this grand festival right before he's about to run for the consulship. But Bibulus had the misfortune of sharing Caesar's aedileship, of sharing his praetorship, probably his quaestorship too. So every year Bibulus has been in office, he's never been able to be the star because he's always outshined by this incredibly talented and flashy individual that is Julius Caesar. But Bibulus is beyond happy to be pictured by the Optimates as the, quote, you know, savior of the Republic from Caesar as the Optimates see it. But there is another candidate, and Caesar approaches this man. His name is Lucius Lucius. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Lucius Lucius, who is a very rich yet undistinguished and uncharismatic senator, and Caesar proposes an alliance with him. And essentially, the alliance would work like this. Caesar would provide the star appeal and the favor of the people, and Lucius Lucius would provide the money for the campaign and bribes. And Lucius Lucius is not a name you need to remember. He never really comes up again, but Caesar makes this arrangement with him. And things begin to look desperate for Cato and the Optimates. So much so that Cato turns a blind eye when Bibulus and the Optimates start having their agents pass out bribe to the electorate. And this is a quote from Suetonius, quote, Many men contributed funds, and Cato himself admitted this was a time when even bribery might be excused for the sake of the commonwealth. End quote. So here's Cato, the paragon of Roman virtues and values that never misses a chance to attack and criticize other people for being amoral in any way, that hates Caesar for ever bribing anybody. And when it comes to, you know, when it comes down to it, when Cato 
feels that it's in his best interest to bribe the electorate and to stop Caesar from winning the consulship or from you know winning it outright with his ally, Cato's perfectly fine to sacrifice his morals. So this is where I begin to lose respect for Cato. At least Caesar never has the pretense to pretend to have the moral high ground and to preach to people. Cato's constantly preaching. But if you're going to be preaching like that, then you better walk the walk too. And here Cato is essentially sacrificing his morals the second it becomes convenient for him to do so. But that's where we're going to leave off today with this election coming up. They're about to vote on it. I'm going to give you the results of it next week. Hopefully you don't Google it in the meantime. And I'll tell you this much, that what happens with this election and the events that follow change Rome forever. In our next few episodes, we're going to have forum battles. We're going to have secret conspiracies. We're going to have, really, the feelings of Caesar's contemporaries will change forever in the next few years. And some people will begin to hate him that didn't have any feelings towards him before that. And the people that did hate him begin to despise him over what happens in in these next few episodes. So stay tuned, and we're going to have another episode for you next Thursday on the March of History.